Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 is where we'll be this morning together. What a privilege it is to read the word and to hear it. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the reading of it, the hearing of it. It's a blessing consider the scriptures. Holy Spirit, may you use the word this morning to speak to our hearts. Lord, may we not just run through a service. Lord, may we pause and reflect and meditate and be open to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives through the scripture. Lord, faithful you are. You are able to handle my heart. So, Lord, I pray that you would be father and friend to us this morning. God, give us a heartbeat for the word of God. And, Lord, we pray for John and Kaylee and the church plant coming up next year. How exciting that is. What a wonderful privilege it is for us to give of our money and to give of our love and our prayers to John and Kaylee. God, we're so excited for them as they start a church that reaches people who don't yet know Jesus. I can think of a church that was in a similar boat 14 years ago. And that would be us, God. So Lord, we've been in their shoes and what a joy and privilege it is to partner with them. Lord, may may you bring about generosity for your glory. And God, may you speak to us now through your word. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. So we continue our sermon series, Romans, the power of God to salvation. And my sermon title this morning is Nowhere to Run, Nowhere to Hide. And no, it's not the Martha Reed and the Vandellas song, Motown, 1965. Anybody? Anybody? Yes. Uh, it's not that, but it did influence my study this week as I studied the word that song continue to come to my heart and to my mind, nowhere to run to baby, nowhere to hide. Right. And I just kept thinking about that as we approached this text. And as I studied, have you ever played hide and go seek? Yeah. 
Hide and go seek? Yep. Okay, hide and go seek. Everybody's played hide and go seek. We played hide and go seek all the time as kids. My, my brothers and I played. Uh, we had no sisters, so it got a little rambunctious in the house. And when we had our cousins over or our friends over, it got a little tight because we were a little bit on the poorer side, right, of middle class, and we had a 900-square-foot house. And if you can imagine four boys played in hide-and-seek in 900 square feet, you know what I'm talking about. Like you're looking for places that don't exist to hide. And so uh, you, would, you have, who have played hide-and-go-seek, you, you'll never forget the panic, you know, the electric kind of feeling that goes up and down your spine and in your heart when you hear the counter counting down from 10 to 1. And you remember the 10, 9, 8, 7, and you're scrambling for a spot. You're trying to get underneath a bed. You're trying to get in a closet. You're trying to get going 6, 5, 4. You're trying to find the perfect place where you'll never be found. And then if you have a bunch of brothers in your house, it's 3, 2, 1, go, here I come, guys. Cheaters. Too fast. You're counting too fast, man. But you would never forget that feeling of rush, like where you're just like, dude. And, and it's the worst fear of a hide-and-go-seek person who's hiding to have that moment where, the, where, where you say something, like once he says, ready or not, here I what? Come for you to, to feel the weight of that and then be like, don't say anything stupid. Just be quiet, right? Or the, like the cough, don't cough. And you really want to cough really bad. But once you cough, it gives yourself, you give yourself away. Um, another reality of hide and go seek is that if you're hiding really good, but your legs are sticking out somewhere, somebody sees your feet, right? They, they find you. You're almost there, but they find you gotcha because your feet couldn't be hidden. And then another reality of hide and go seek is that if you met your eyes with the eyes of the seeker, it's over, right? You can't make eye contact because if you do, you're, you're done. No matter how well camouflaged you are, you try to do that. So at the end of every good hide-and-go-seek game is the seeker surrounding you as the last hider. And depending on what version of hide-and-go-seek you play, sometimes every person you catch or you find, they become part of your team, right? And then it's just like, the seeker and his posse or her posse, right? Coming up, it's seven on one. You're trying to not be found, right? But here's the deal. At the end of every game, there's nowhere to run to and there's nowhere to hide. And that is the theme of our passage this morning. God is the seeker in Romans chapter three, verses nine through 20. And the sinners are the hiders, and every sinner who exists on the earth experiences the same reality. There's nowhere to run, and there's nowhere to hide. In fact, this passage reminds me a lot of Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, the psalmist is saying, man, if I go to the heavens, you're there, God. You know that psalm? And if I go down into the depths of the earth, even there, God, you're there. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. God is everywhere. We are all sinners, and God knows all about us. There's nowhere you can hide. And, and Paul is making this strong point this morning that we are all sinners. 
Now, he's been making that point for two chapters now, and many of you are like, when is the point going to be done? <laughs> you know, like chapters one through three, he just keeps dropping the hammer, hammer, hammer. Well, he's almost done. He's almost ready to bring grace in verse 21, but now, but we're not there in that passage yet. So, all are sinners. That's what Paul is saying. Now, our culture struggles very much to think of themselves as sinners. Many in our broad culture does not accept the word sin or sinners anymore because we have evolved past using biblical language anymore to define ourselves. So psychology and secular therapy, we almost erase or eradicate all biblical language because it doesn't make people feel very comfortable to have someone say, you're a sinner. We prefer other words. Our culture also believes that man is basically good rather than basically evil. So that is a problem in our culture that we as Christians have to address all the time. People have made a mistake in regards to the natural inclination of man. And they think that man is basically good, while the Bible says that man is basically evil. So our culture likes comfortable thoughts and softer words. We like soft words. Don't give hard words. We like soft words. Soft words in our postmodern culture, like instead of sin, say weakness, right? Don't say sin, say brokenness. Don't say sin, say, well, I'm incomplete, right? And they summarize the human condition in such a way that to say S-I-N, sin, or sinners, S-I-N-N-E-R-S, is, is to experience the chafing response of a culture that says, we're beyond Christianity, okay? We don't need to define ourselves with such words like sin because that makes us feel not comfortable. Well, I, I'm going to go ahead and side with God. Amen? I'm going to side with God and his language rather than man and his language. So all people, generally speaking, that's what Paul is saying. He's, he's emphatically saying in this passage that all people are generally sinners. Verses 9 and 10 say that all people are generally sinners. Um, verse 13 and 14 says that not only are we sinners, we are mouthy sinners. Can I get a mouthy amen? We've got mouths on us. We'll get there. Verse 15 through 18 says that sin, we are sinners who sin with our feet and our eyes. So we, we do sin with our feet and we do sin with our eyes as well. According to scripture, all people don't merely sin, they are sinners. And that's a big point that Paul is trying to make is that we are depraved. We are sinful. Listen to what Adrian Rogers said, the great preacher he said this, he said, man isn't a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. You see that? You get that? Man isn't a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? That's really the question Paul is answering here. He is telling us that our total depravity doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they could be. But it does mean that everybody's natural bent is towards sin in their nature. That's what Paul is trying to do. So Paul, is, he, is the, 
He's the, he's the seeker here in a lot of ways. He's seeking to find you and I as sinners, and he is trying to find you in a game of hide-and-go-seek and bring you to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's the big idea of the text this morning. All people are sinners, and there's nowhere to run, and there's nowhere to hide. That's the big idea of the passage this morning. All people are sinners, and there's nowhere to run to, and there's nowhere to hide. And I would add this as a comment. Even if you find a great hiding spot as a human sinner, you will be exposed at some point. At some point, God will find you, and he'll expose you for who you are. Look at verse 9. Look with me in verse 9. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, circle the word all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. All, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So here's the question that we're going to try to answer this morning. How am I a sinner exactly? Like, like in what ways am I a sinner, Paul? You tell me what ways this is happening in my life. And so Paul is going to show us five ways in which all people are sinners. What an encouraging message, amen? I'm going to give you five ways that you're a sinner this morning. Hope you're blessed and filled, right? Five ways of being a sinner. Way number one is this. Being a sinner is our natural bent. Being a sinner is our natural bent. Verse 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, and they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul points out strongly that all people are sinners, and he begins with this string of Bible quotes. And he is quoting from Ecclesiastes and Isaiah and the Psalms. So there's a lot of Psalms references in here too. So if you're looking at your Bible, it's the quotable section, right? You can see the quotes are different in your Bible in this section because Paul just is laying down quote after quote after quote, and he's using the Old Testament to show us that everyone is indeed sinful. So the basic truth of verses 10 through 12 is that you and I don't know a good person. We don't know a good person. Now, you can feel your Midwestern Iowa nice just chafe under that, don't you? <laughs> you don't know a good person. You're like, wait a minute, pastor. Wait a minute, Paul. You don't even understand who we are. We are Iowa nice. We even have a phrase for how great we are. We are so nice that you don't even know. You can't call us sinners because we are Midwestern. There is a difference, right? Jesus, you need to help the coasts, amen? But leave the heartland alone. We're righteous in the heartland. We love people in the heartland. We are not sinners. And we, we catch ourselves all the time in the Midwest saying things with the, the, the descriptor of good. Ah, oh, that's a good kid. That's a good kid right there. Or that's a really good guy. That's a really good girl. That, that's a really good person. Like they are really a good person to me. What we mean by that 
is not theological. We mean practical. That is a good person outwardly. I can trust in them. They believe in morals. They do the thing. They, they agree with me in this context of conversation. So I'm going to say, that's a good kid, or that's a good guy, or that's a good gal. What we mean theologically, though, Paul is going to stand up to our Iowa nice, and he's going to say, verses 10 through 12, the quotes from Psalm 14 and 55, he's going to say, you don't know a good person. You don't know a good person because everybody is bent toward evil. Now, you know this to be true deep in your heart. You know this to be true. And here's how I'm going to argue. There's no lying class in elementary school. There's no class in elementary school. We're like, okay, kids, come around. We're going to teach you how to be deceivers today. Y'all come in. I'm going to give you my top 10 lies. I want you to take these and run with them, right? That'd be ridiculous, right? There's no cursing class in Julie McDaniel's K for T program that I know of anyway. <laughs> and I guess if there is a cursing class in Julie's program, I guess she and I need to have a conversation. Amen. But there's no class in Julie's program where she's coming into the kids like, hey, I'm going to teach you every curse word I know. God bless you. Be warm, be filled, and also get your verses memorized too, right? It's not, it doesn't happen. There's no illegal drugs and how to join a gang class in Justin Einerson's Lincoln High School hallway. That class does not exist. There's no class like, hey, you want to know how to deal and how to do illegal drugs? That's hallway down from Einerson's house, or Einerson's house. No, not his house. Again, that I know of, his hallway. All right, it, that's room 208 down the, down the hallway class, right? There's no sexual sin class in Aaron York's Carlisle Elementary second grade hallway. There is no class where we're like, hey kids, we're going to gather around and confuse the snot out of you with sexual sin according to the Bible. That doesn't happen. Why don't we sit and teach our kids how to sin? Because it comes naturally to their hearts. All right? It comes naturally to their hearts because they're depraved. Kids don't need instruction classes about how to sin. They pick, on, they pick up on it very nicely and they don't forget anything. Can I get a parent amen? Now, are there cute moments of joy and obedience and goodness with your children? Yes, absolutely. It's called social media. We take a quick photo and post it and be like, look at my life. So great. Lies, lies. But here's the deal. All of the moments of joy and obedience and goodness in your children, they happen by the grace of God, they happen. But that doesn't outweigh the bent that they have towards sin. Way more often they're sinful. Why? Because sinful things come naturally to the human heart. We are naturally evil because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. We have an inheritance called the curse of sin. And that is our inheritance, every one of us. And we struggle so much because we are sinners and it is our natural bent 
And being a sinner is in everybody's natural bent. That is what Paul is saying. And God himself is saying, ready or not, here I come. The second way in which all people are sinners, way number two, is our mouth. Our mouth gives us away. The second way in which people are sinners is our mouth. Our mouth gives us away, verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul is saying that all people's mouths are filled with filthy language. Deceit, manipulation, destructive words. Paul is not being very nice here to us because he is saying our mouths are full of snake venom. Does that make you feel warm and fuzzy on a Sunday morning or what? Your mouth is full of snake venom. You are a snake. That doesn't make me feel great. Our mouths are full of curses and swearing. That's what Paul is saying. And he's quoting from Psalm 5 and Psalm 140 and Psalm 10. Full of curses and swearing. I got an illustration for this just this week. Uh, we went to a library, public library in, here in the area. And Danielle and I needed to work on a project, so we went to a library, nice and quiet. That's what I thought. So we go to the library, work on our stuff, and there are a slew of junior hires in this library. And when we got in there, we started working on our stuff, and I'm telling you, we heard every curse word under the earth. And it was loud. I mean, we were talking F-bombs. We're talking, there at one point, a girl threw a chair across the room, and I'm just like trying to work on my stuff, and it's like, this, and I'm like, Danielle, I'm going to go talk to them right now. And Danielle's like, don't you dare. Because <laughs> I'm looking at the library staff, and they're not doing anything. I mean, nothing. And it is loud cursing, and there is stuff happening. There, I mean, there are all kinds of counseling phrases that are being used about suicide and violence and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is the stuff that we're, we're getting emails about all the time from schools. Like, hey, you need to watch for this stuff. I mean, it's just boom. I listened to my wife. I didn't say anything. But I thought this. I said, what a perfect illustration of the wickedness of the human heart. Our mouths are full of cursing. And part of that is just being a sinner, and part of that is just being a junior higher. Amen? Part of it is just being junior high. Our mouths are full of bitterness, anger, and grudges, Paul says. Think about that. What a powerful verse, verse 14 is. The ma their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Any of your words this week come out with bitterness in your heart? Ouch, right? So many words that we speak are thought and spoken every hour of every day without God's glory or without his honor in our minds. And you might be saying, well, my mouth isn't that bad. My mouth isn't that bad. I, I, I'm not with all these wicked people over here. Here's a little exercise of thought that I'd like you to take with me. What if we put all of your audible words from last week up on the screen, 
with subtitles for all to see. And we just hit play. And we listened to every single word you said this week. How embarrassing would that be? How unbelievably humbling is that thought to have all the words you said this past week up on a screen for all people to see and you're like, oh my, I thought my mouth was doing okay, but maybe not. We are wicked. Our mouths give us away. And think about Jesus, how great he is. Jesus Christ never spoke a bad word. Not one misplaced word in Jesus Christ's mouth, ever. That is amazing. His words brought healing, amen? His words brought restoration. His words brought forgiveness. His words brought building up. His words brought transformation. His words brought eternal life. And the soldiers who looked at Christ When they came back to give a report about Jesus, they say, hey, why didn't you arrest him? And you know what they said? No one ever spoke like this man. They were always trying to catch Jesus in his words, but they could never do it because his words were perfect. Paul tells Christians that no corrupt words should proceed from your mouth except Words that build up and edify the listener. Ephesians 4.29. The call for Christians is to mimic and mirror the, the mouth of Jesus Christ. Our mouths give us away. And God says, ready or not, here I come. Now the third way in which all people are sinners is that our feet give us away. Our feet give us away. Not only our mouths, but our feet. Verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Our feet take us to bad places. We are sinners, and our actions are sinful. We are, to to borrow a phrase from a sermon a few weeks ago, we are consistently inconsistent with our actions. We go to places that we shouldn't go. We do things that we shouldn't do. Have you ever thought, I shouldn't be here right now? You ever thought that? You're in a sinful place. You're in a tough spot. You're in a room. You're in a relationship. And you thought, I shouldn't be here right now. I shouldn't be here. Have you ever thought this? I shouldn't do this, dot, dot, dot where the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you know that it's a sinful action and you know that you shouldn't do it and you said, I shouldn't do this. Those are the actions that kill our souls and deaden us inside. This is the power of sin. The power of sin is that it it leads our feet to go to places we shouldn't go. Listen again to Adrian Rogers who says this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's a powerful quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Our feet give us away. And God says, ready or not, here I come. The fourth way in which all people are sinners is our eyes. Our eyes give us away. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a quote from Psalm 36. The fear of the Lord is reverential awe of God, awareness of God, love for God, living before God's presence with humility. That is reverence. 
To fear the Lord is a great thing. It's a very good thing for us. Think of Proverbs 1.7, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Think about that one. Being a sinner, our propensity is to live without reverence. We are irreverent. We are a culture of irreverence. You look around our culture, is, you might hear the phrase, is nothing sacred anymore? You remember that, that phrase? You've heard that before. It's nothing sacred anymore. What's going on with our culture? It's so casual. Everything's so casual and irreverent. And that is true. That is happening to our culture right now. We are professionals at being irreverent towards God and towards each other. The question comes to mind regarding reverence and eyes. Where are your eyes going? Who are you when no one else is looking? Who are you this week when no one else is looking? What happens when your golf ball goes out of bounds? Just a foot. I mean, just a foot, right? Like what happens? Nobody else is looking. Your, fair, your golf partner is a fair way away. Is it time for the foot wedge? You know, time for a little kick. No two-stroke penalty for me. Thank you very much. Yeah, dude, it was really close to being out of bounds, but it wasn't quite out of bounds. I don't know, man. Some people just have all the luck. Who are you when no one else is looking? Here's another question. Who are you when the room is empty and it's just you and your screen? Who are you? What'd you look at this week? What'd you put in front of your eyes this week when no one else was looking? When, it, when the room was empty, and you can look at whatever you want. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. That's what the old Sunday school song goes. Has there ever been a generation who sins more with their eyes than our generation? Has there ever been a generation who have had so many gateway experiences with a screen in front of your eyes where it's a gateway to sin? Where you can have sin in 0.25 seconds, right? You're a simple Google search away. You're a couple touches of your finger away and your eyes are looking at sin. Have you ever measured your screen time? <laughs> I have. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing how much time I'm spending with my eyes on a screen. Our eyes were not meant to look at sin and the idolatry, our eyes were meant to look at God and to lift our eyes vertically to God and to horizontally to our brothers and sisters in Christ in need. God has eyes and he's looking. God is watching you. And I always think of the Monsters, Inc. character, right? That old secretary lady. I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching. What a spooky old lady, right? I was like, ooh. Don't think of God that way. God is not that, right? But God is always watching you. And we as sinners, our eyes are constantly, because we're bent towards sin, we're constantly looking to lesser things than God. On contrast, think about Jesus' eyes in the gospel. Think about this man. He looks straight into Judas' eyes. And he said, friend, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Think about Jesus' eyes. 
seeing the Samaritan woman. Nobody else sees her. He sees her. Think about the the man who was born blind, sitting on the side of the road. Everybody else is moving past this man. Jesus sees him. His eyes are ready. Think about Jesus' eyes to Peter when Peter, right at the third time he denied Christ, Jesus fixed his eyes on Peter's eyes and they met. As Jesus is getting beaten in the face, By the hands of his oppressors, he looks across the room and he meets eyes with Peter and Peter runs out of the room bitter and sad. Our eyes give us away. Ready or not, God says, here I come. The fifth way in which all people are sinners is the law and the law shuts us up. The fifth way that we know we're sinners is the law and the law shuts us up. Verse 19 and 20. For we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law here encapsulates the whole Old Testament and the law has one major role in our lives to shut our mouths and hold us accountable to God. Think about how serious our sin condition is when it takes 39 books of scripture to wrestle us down into the ground until we quit fighting. You and I, our sin problem is so big that God had to give us 39 books to wrestle us to the ground and get us quiet and stopped fighting. The law shows us that we fall short of the glory of God. That's what the law does. It exposes our sin. It it gives definition to our sin. The law stops all people, you and me, Jew and Gentile, pastor and Christian and everybody else. The law of God stops everybody and brings everybody silent to the foot of the cross where we see the bloody Jesus hanging there for us, for our sins. The law stops all people, shuts their mouths, and oh, how I wish our culture would listen to the law of God more and more because a lot of us need to be shut up and we need to be sitting in front of the cross of Christ saying, I am a wicked sinner like every other wicked sinner and I have nothing to say as I watch the righteous Jesus bleed for me. Oh, how I wish our politicians would read the law of God and be quiet. Amen? We live in a land where our politicians, all they have is words, but they don't read the Bible. I get so fired up. When all I see is words, 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 words. No law of God. How about you read the Old Testament and shut your mouth? And I, I, how about pastors do that? Jeez, I got a lot of words. I need to be quiet. Read the scripture and see. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm just here in the front of the presence of Jesus Christ to worship and bow down before him? What about 
teachers and administrators in school. Like all we have is words, 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 and we need the law of God. The law stops people and brings everybody to the foot of the cross. Think about the man who came before God in Luke 18 and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had been stopped in his tracks. Think about the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes who are getting into the kingdom of God first, according to Matthew 21, 28 through 32. God's law brought them to that place where they knew they needed Jesus. The law is powerful because it strips us of all of our boasting and it leaves us in front of Jesus. The law shuts us up and God says, ready or not, here I come. So Paul has pushed home the reality in chapters 1 through 3 that we are all sinners and there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. So as we close this message, I want to ask you a couple questions. Who's the best person you've ever known or the best person you can think of? Who is that? Maybe it's Billy Graham. Maybe it's Mother Teresa. Maybe it's a godly relative. Maybe it's a mentor, someone who really loved Christ and poured into your life. And I, I just want to say a bit this about the best of us. Each of the best humans you know were and are wicked in their hearts and sinful and broken. Every human hero you've ever had, sinful, broken in their heart and mind. Don't lift them up on a pedestal. Don't lift them up. Don't worship them. Worship God. Here's another question. Who's the worst person you can think of? Who's the worst person you know? Adolf Hitler? A politician? A used car salesman? Someone you know in prison? Death row? Each of the worst humans that you can possibly think of are never beyond the mighty grace of God. The worst people you know that you've shoved them out, no hope for them. They're not beyond our God. They can be saved. We are sinners. That's been abundantly clear this morning from this text of Scripture. We are sinners. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus knows Man, he knows every sin. He knows every thought. He knows everything that's going on wicked in your life. He knows and he loves you. He loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. If, if, if you will finally admit that you are a sinner in need of his grace. I want it so bad for you guys. I want it so bad for some of you. If, if you would admit. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. The church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. We're going to have counselors up front. We're going to sing, we're going to respond, we're going to do what we do at the end of services. If God's working on your heart, please, please let us know and respond. If you're a believer in Christ, wow, what an what a awesome moment, right, to confess sin and get right and soften your heart.
And if you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, what a good moment to get saved. God is coming. Ready or not, here I come. May God find us ready for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. That's the condition of man apart from your grace, God. And so we come before you fully admitting our sin. And Lord, we pray that you would work right now through the power of the Holy Spirit to get people to come to Jesus, just to come to Jesus and give up this idea that we're not sinners, that everything's fine. Lord, we are completely broken. We are completely sinful, and we need the grace of Christ. So Jesus, rain your grace down on us. Help us respond with the power of God. Help us to open our hearts. Help us to get right in Jesus' name. Amen.